When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Mary Sarah Builder. She is the author of Eliza Harriet and George Washington at the Dawn of the Constitution, Female Geniuses. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me, Deirdre. I'm really good. How about yourself? Great. Thank you for being on the show this morning. First, I'd like you to tell us something about how you began this um, project. What led you to this project? Well, it's such a great question. I was, I'd written another book actually on James Madison and um, about his notes of the convention, which are very famous. And I read all the diaries that people wrote that summer in the summer of 1787 when they were in Philadelphia writing the Constitution. And one of my favorite diaries was a diary that George Washington kept about what he did that summer. And in that diary, he described how he'd gone to hear a lady lecture. And I was like, who is that lady? What is she doing? Is that ordinary or not? And I just filed it away in my head. And then when I was looking for a new project, I was like, I'm going to go back and listen and try and figure out who she is and what I can learn about her. And that became um, this book, Female Genius. Great. You know, you started the book by talking about the first woman to run for president and the role that women played in the Constitution. Tell the audience about that time period. Yeah, so the first woman who um, ran for president was in 1872, a woman named Victoria Woodhull. And there are some great books about her, um, if you don't know very much about her. She was a really interesting person and um, both, you know, like, for a while ran a stock brokerage firm with her sister, but also was a spiritualist. So very interesting. And she ran on a party called the Equal Rights Party. And um, 
uh, like if you look her up, you'll see that a lot of people aren't sure whether we should count her as the first woman because she was just shy of her 35th birthday. Um, but she's usually the person who we assume uh, was the first woman to run for president. And she obviously didn't um, she didn't win. She she claimed that Frederick Douglass was running as her running mate, but but he didn't know that that was true. But um, but she reminds us, uh, I think, that, you know, the first woman to run was in 1872 before the um, 19th Amendment was passed. And even today, we still don't have a woman uh, elected as um, the president. So it tells us something about the way in which women have related to the constitutional state and um, how we imagine what women speaking in front of us and being in political power look like. Now, you're approaching the life of Eliza Harriet uh, through the lens of the Constitution. Why is this so significant? Well, one of the things that I find really interesting about the Constitution is when we read the Constitution, we you know, can read it in different ways. And so particularly younger people who see the pronoun he can read the Constitution as if it Um, excludes women completely and doesn't even imagine in any way the possibility of women participating uh, as voters or as political representatives. Um, Those of us who are a little bit older, like myself, um, probably will remember a time when the word he was a gender neutral pronoun. And so there's a way of actually looking at the Constitution and seeing that, that the Constitution in that sense, doesn't have any exclusions on who can participate based on sex or gender. And so um, I'm really interested, I'm a constitutional historian, and I'm really interested in how in the 1780s, when the Constitution was just coming into existence, and everybody didn't yet know quite what it was and how it was going to work, how there might have been some possibility to imagine women's participation. And that's the question I went back to think about. And um, I learned a great deal. And although in the 1790s, in the United States, it will become, um, constitutions will be used to exclude people. What's interesting is in the 1780s, when the constitution itself was drafted, that wasn't yet so clear. And so my book uses the story of this remarkable woman, Eliza Harriet Barons O'Connor, to tell both her story and then to tell about this period that we don't really always know about when a lot of women of particularly wealthier classes imagined that they could do higher education and they could po- participate in politics. Now, I thought this was interesting. Tell us more about this. What did you find about the unmarried women? Did they have more rights? Yeah, it's such an interesting question, Deirdre. You know, we grow up in a time period you know, quite fortunately, where whether you're married or not as a woman doesn't really affect your rights. Now, that's not completely true. Like I know when I got married, um, my insurance rates changed because my husband had some speeding tickets. And I was like, I married you for better or worse, but not to have all these speeding tickets. So you better start driving better. So there are places where um, 
the fact that we're married still affects our rights, but not not so much today. But that wasn't true um, uh, a while back. In fact, it only changed in the 19th century. And in the period in which Eliza Harriet lived, she was born in 1749. When you married, you became what was called femme couvert. And that's a sort of law French term that referred to the fact that married women lost their legal identities on being married. And they actually couldn't write wills for themselves. They couldn't um, own property in their own name. They couldn't um, sue or be sued in their own name. And so they became what were called femme couverts or basically covered women, and they lost their legal identities. And they were classified in the same category as children. Uh, and in books written about married women, um, they're classified right next to what were called infants, which is we would think of people in their uh, minority. And so they didn't have any legal identity. And and uh, only in the 19th century with um, legislation called Married Women's Property Acts do women begin to, um, to, to gain back their legal identities. And what that meant was that um, if you remained unmarried or you were a widow and your spouse died, you actually had a legal identity. And so um, for a lot of women, that marriage brought with it this sort of, um, this sort of erasure. And, uh, and what's interesting about Eliza Harriet's story is, is she does get married, um, but she's lucky in that her father left her with a little trust, a little, uh, some funds that her husband couldn't touch. And she's also the major uh, breadwinner for them. But she doesn't, she's never able to sort of control her own property uh, in that sense. In a little bit later generation, um, some very famous women who become heads of schools will actually remain unmarried. Um, And some people think that that was deliberately so that they could continue to control their own property. Now, you talked about this in the book, women's inclusion in the constitutional state. Tell us what is meant by that. Yeah, it's a it's a phrase that sounds kind of like highfalutin and, and funky. But what I'm talking about is um, nowadays, because of um, the fact that we've had a very long time of living under the 1787 Constitution, we understand rights in very clear ways. So we would think if you are a citizen, you have certain rights and you can run for political office and you can vote and you can uh, serve on a jury. But um, but that grouping of rights that, that we think all belong together um, take a long time to sort of consolidate. And in fact, um, married, in fact, women don't serve on juries until the 1950s and 1960s in this country. Um, So a lot of the rights that we, particularly younger women might think all belong together, have taken a long time to to come uh, together. And in the period in which I'm writing, the 1770s and 1780s, women wondered whether they could Uh, vote and whether they could serve in political office. And they do that against a background where lots of people in the larger Atlantic world, that is in England and Ireland uh, and um, the American colonies, uh, couldn't participate. And so, so we often think of participation along the lines that 
we're used to thinking. So are you a citizen? Are you not a citizen? Are you a man or a woman? Are you a white person or a person of color? But in the period in which um, Eliza Harriet was born, uh, what mattered in order to vote was, did you own enough landed property? And did you um, did you have the ability to um, take the right kind of religious oath? And so restrictions on voting usually uh, involved um, religion and property holding. And gradually that will change. And so in this period, it's not yet apparent that women can't vote or can't stand for political office. And in fact, in the 1770s, um, women debating societies in London debate whether or not women should be able to vote uh, and participate by being elected into political office. Now, I'm always interested in spaces. Uh, what were some of the ways in which women occupy, occupied public spaces? Yeah, it's so interesting. What, the book has a lot of illustrations um, because I love illustrations. And I really wanted to have a picture of a woman speaking because that's one of the things that Eliza Harriet goes on to do is she becomes the Right now, we believe she was the first woman to give a public lecture, basically to to speak in public in a, a public place. She speaks at the universe at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's the first woman in the United States to do that. And she's completely unusual, and she's so unusual that I could not find images of women speaking in public. There are some. Um, images of actresses from the period, but they basically have their mouths closed. And the image that um, one can find early on of um, of women speaking is um, from the is, is depictions of a Roman woman named Hortensia, who very famously argued on behalf of married women in the um, classical Roman texts uh, that because they. Um, paid taxes, they should be included in the state. But um, but other than Hortensia, there aren't very many women in public spaces. And so Eliza Harriet's decision to be a woman and to give lectures is really extraordinary. Now, tell us, how does George Washington fit into the story of Eliza? Yeah, he's in the title, and he's in the title for a couple reasons. But most importantly, because um, we know about Eliza Harriet because of her connection to George Washington. So there are five letters um, today that we know of that Eliza Harriet wrote, and four of those letters are to George Washington. And Eliza Harriet didn't have any children, and children are often the people who hang on to our papers. And so Eliza Harriet's papers um, to my knowledge, don't survive. And so the reason we know a lot about Eliza Harriet is, first of all, that her letters that she wrote to George Washington survive. And secondly, um, George Washington went and heard her lecture and she tr wanted him to be there. She delayed her lecture a day to make sure he would come. And because he was the most famous person in the United States at the time, the fact that he went to hear her lecture um, and, and seemed to think it was actually, you know, interesting and acceptable meant that um, many newspapers reported 
her lecture. And so she survives in newspapers. We can see her in newspapers uh, because of George Washington's attendance. And he was actually pretty supportive of her. He wrote in his diary that her lecture was tolerable. And I always like to remind people that in Pride and Prejudice, which is which is started by Jane Austen just about 10 years after Eliza Harriet spoke, um, Mr. Darcy, the first time he sees Eliza Bennett, says that she's tolerable. And so um, it's a word that doesn't mean completely acceptable, but it's, but it's pretty good, actually, <laughs> in terms of um, uh, somebody thinking that your lecture was tolerable. And then Eliza Harriet um, will move eventually uh, to Alexandria near Mount Vernon, and Washington will uh, support her school there, and she will actually visit George and Martha Washington at Mount Vernon. You know, when she marries, they move a lot. Do you think this movement had a negative impact on her establishing roots in her school? Oh, Deirdre, you're so right about that. She, um, you know, she's uh, very um, ambitious. She works incredibly hard. Repeatedly, she will give lectures and start a school uh, and actually get her school up and running for young women, only to have her husband basically either decide they're moving to a new city or probably run up debts that he can't pay. And so they have to flee um, creditors. And I, when I think about her life, um, there's a map in the book showing that they, um, you know, she's born in, in Lisbon, Portugal to British parents and, and moves to London and Dublin and then eventually comes to the United States in 1786 in New York. And then literally almost once a year, if not more than that, they are moving southward along a highway that genealogists probably know a lot about called the King's Highway, which ran um, up and down the East Coast uh, all the way down towards uh, to Charleston. And uh, it must have been so frustrating to start a school to become successful only to basically have to move on uh, to another city. And some of the time that she moves, um, she seems to be m moving herself to catch up with John, who's already left her. He, he was trying to write a history of the United States, and he was never successful at that. Um, but but she's kind of always working in incredibly, uh, incredibly hard. And she reminds us about the way in which for so many um, married women in this period, your economic prospects were really uh, in some ways dependent on, on your, um, on your spouse. And, and there's actually in women's history, there's a lot of correspondence among um, older married women to younger women when they get married, um, sort of reflecting on the difficulties that that would pose for women during their married lives, where they were very um, dependent on whether or not their husbands could have jobs and, and their lives were sort of caught up in that. Now, Another term that you um, described in the book is called Republican motherhood. Can you tell the audience about this meaning for women during the 1700s? Yeah, so so because of um, uh, some work done by um, two very famous women historians, Linda Kerber uh, and Mary Norton, um, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, 
sort of standard approach to thinking about women in this period is that um, uh, what women could aim to is the idea of Republican motherhood. And this has become, um, you know, pretty much a cartoon concept, but it shows up on like U.S. history core curriculums. And the idea is, is that women did not have um, the ambition to participate in politics, but they could help develop young men as citizens through their roles as mothers. And so that's why it's called Republican motherhood, because the idea is you're um, working on behalf of the of the Republic through your role as mother. And the central um, evidence for this argument came from a very famous speech and pamphlet written by Benjamin Rush. And Benjamin Rush was a, a political um, figure who lived in Philadelphia and was anti-slavery and uh, sort of interested in all sorts of um, liberal political causes. And he argued that uh, in the summer of 1787 that the that what women should be educated for was to be the sort of role of being mothers to to men who would be the people who participated in politics. And um, and that idea was pretty nuanced when Linda Kerber and Mary Norton wrote about it, but over time became kind of uh, a cartoon figure. And one of the things that to me was so interesting in thinking about it is that Benjamin Rush writes that pamphlet arguing that women should only be educated to be wives and mothers uh, in order to drive Eliza Harriet out of Philadelphia. Eliza Harriet had moved to Philadelphia in 1787, and not only did she give these extraordinary lectures, the first woman to speak in public, but she had um, tried to start a very um, uh, extensive academy for women that would be run um, by a majority of women's votes. And Benjamin Rush supported a school that was run by men for women, the Young Ladies Academy. And so Eliza Harriet represented a big threat to Rush's school and Rush's vision of what uh, women should do. And so he wrote this pamphlet arguing that all of the things that Eliza Harriet wanted to educate women for um, were bad ideas uh, and that women should be educated um, in a peculiar way, as he put it, uh, which meant they should be educated in math, but only enough to basically fulfill this role uh, as um, as mothers. And Eliza Harriet didn't have the money or funds to sort of uh, – publish her writings, but Benjamin Rush was very well supported. And so Benjamin Rush's vision of women has been the one that we tend to see. Uh, and that one of the things the book tries to do is recover this other idea about what women could be educated for uh, and how they could participate in politics. You know, I had a, another question about location. Was Eliza more successful in the South versus the north or the eastern region? Yeah, it's such an interesting question and one that I really struggled with. You know, in um, in the if Hollywood ever made a, a movie about Eliza Harriet and she'd be a wonderful person to have a movie made about, they'd probably um, make her anti-slavery and, you know, um, have a lot of beliefs that we would like to agree with. And 
And that might be true of Eliza Harriet. She and her husband, her husband was Irish Catholic. Uh, her husband very much, uh, and she believed in um, a lot of liberal causes, and they were probably against things like the slave trade. Um, there's evidence that, that certainly he wrote about that. But we don't know how Eliza Harriet thought herself about slavery. And um, slavery is uh, legal in all of the 13 colonies um, during the certainly um, early period that Eliza Harriet is, it begins in the United States. And Eliza Harriet moves progressively southward. She, her most successful school will actually be in Charleston, and she ends her days uh, in Columbia. And one of the things that the book thinks hard about is how did the realities of a world of enslaved labor, particularly in a place like Charleston, uh, actually um, uh, uncomfortably work to make what Eliza Harriet was trying to do in her school easier for her. And there's two ways in which her schools were probably more successful uh, in the South. First of all, in a in Charleston, where there was a lot of enslaved labor and particularly um, people were rented out to other people, um, Eliza Harriet had access to um, less expensive labor and she was able to just teach her school. And so that's a, a way in which um, uh, she was personally benefited from the ways in which she had moved to a economy based on slavery, even if she herself was opposed to it. And then what she was sort of selling as an idea about women's education, and she always describes herself as a lady, was a type of... Um, status that was only in this period available to white women. And so she's, um, she's sort of sort of occupying a space that is very much a space um, uh, about being a white woman, probably about being a white woman with a British accent. What's interesting to me is that in the period that Eliza Harriet lives in Charleston in the 1790s, we know that people were secretly teaching uh, young um, African-American children uh, to read and write because the Charleston uh, legislature, the South Carolina legislature actually passes a statute that says that you can't teach people sort of on both ends of the day to read or write. And I certainly would love to imagine Eliza Harriet um, being one of these people who was trying to um, uh, help young enslaved children and free African-American children to learn um, uh, greater education in this period. But I don't know that as a fact, um, as a historian. Now, can you describe to us the, the female genius and the Capitol building? Yeah, so I have the female genius, which is um, the title of the book, is a concept in this period in the 1770s and 1780s that women have capacity, that they're not inferiors, that they are equally capable of being educated and doing things uh, that men participate in. And we see this concept used, for example, to describe lots of women in the 1770s and 1780s. Um, somebody just sent me 
a great letter where Abigail Adams talks about um, sort of female genius in this way. Phyllis Wheatley, the great African-American poet, um, was described that way. So I use it as a way to talk about a moment when women think they shouldn't be treated as inferiors. And one of the things that's interesting to me about the Capitol building is that there actually is a statue in the Capitol building called the Genius of the Constitution. Um, When the Capitol was built, the House of Representatives the chamber had two female figures in it. And one was um, Cleo, the muse of history. uh, And the other was this figure, um, sort of the genius of the constitution. And then when the British burned uh, the capital, the the female figure of Cleo survived and the other figure had to be rebuilt. And it was rebuilt by a sculptor uh, called the genius of the constitution. It's actually just the plaster cast because Congress never paid for the marble version of the statue. And um, when, so there were these two figures and when the house of representatives got much bigger and they left that chamber for the part of the capital that they now reside in, um, that chamber became National Statuary Hall. And if you go to National Statuary Hall and you look up, um, you which is the old um, House of Representatives chamber, you can see Cleo, um, uh, who's still there with her chariot, and you can see this figure, the genius um, of the Constitution, which is a pretty incredible um, uh, female figure who originally would have stood right behind the male speaker in the House of Representatives. Um, but um, but those two female figures, the, the House left them behind when they moved back into their chamber. Another term that I want you to explain to us is blue stockings. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? So I, this is um, a fascinating aspect of women um, that I actually didn't know very much about. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that. But there were um, these incredible women in England in the, particularly the 1770s into the 1780s. Some of them had begun in the 1760s. And um, they were um, all sorts of women who believed that they could write plays, they could um, do paintings, they could appear on stage as, um, uh, as as singers, they could write political histories like Catherine Macaulay, and they could hold salons. So they could hold um, uh, sort of social meetings where people would discuss politics and other important issues. And these women became referred to um, as blue stockings. Uh, people think that's actually um, probably comes from the the color of the stocking that some men wore to some of the meetings. But this term blue stocking became over time associated um, uh, eventually in a not, not positive light, but associated with women who aspired to be educated, who were interested in discussing politics and literature. Uh, and you can see in a lot of um, writing in the 19th century, beginning, you know, even before Jane Austen, um, that the person who often shows up with a book uh, or wants to talk politics is referred to as a blue stocking, and um, and they're pretty they're pretty amazing um, amazing women who were 
um, very, very influential. Um, people might have seen the um, the movie on Georgina, the Duchess of Devonshire, and she very famously in the 1780s um, participates in election politics by um, trying to advance one of the political candidates for office. And so she's also considered um, part of this blue stocking uh, movement and that and that sort of politics and and belief in um, that you could write literature is part of what creates the novel. So the novel um, comes into existence in this period, and the novel comes into existence associated with women, uh, really thought of as a type of um, literature for women and a type of literature written by women. And women were able to access the novel because um, this period sees the rise of what were called circulating libraries. So that would be somewhat akin to public libraries, but you paid a little subscription. And this allowed women really for the first time to begin to read all sorts of literature that wasn't super heavy histories and religious works. Because if you paid a subscription, you could just borrow as many books uh, as you wanted. And you didn't have to be wealthy. You didn't have to ask your father for permission. You didn't have to, you know, own a big house with a library. And so the circulating library and the rise of the novel are both incredibly important in the way in which women begin to um, uh, participate as authors um, and uh, and write about women's stories. Now, there's another nugget that I found interesting. Tell us about the newspaper accounts of the female debating societies. What happened? Yeah, I know. This was one of these things where actually when I first read about it, I was like, that can't pop. Like, how, why didn't I know about that? In the 1770s, women in London, um, that's where we know a lot about it, where people have written about it, formed um, debating societies, female debating societies. And they um, they met often, often weekly, and they debated all sorts of um uh, questions, including political questions. And very importantly, they published in the newspaper their meetings and the questions that were being debated. So one of the things that's interesting to think about, and we know this from our own familiarity with social media, is, you know, you can learn something by going to the event itself. But even if you didn't go to the event, if there's a lot of publicity about the event, that itself changes your sort of worldview or your knowledge. And so the female debating societies um, published the questions that they were debating. And so one of the questions that uh, a lot of the female debating societies repeatedly debate is whether or not um, women should be allowed to attend the university, which they weren't allowed to attend, and whether they should be allowed to vote uh, and serve um, as members of, of parliament. And um, the female debating societies basically disappear uh, in the 1770s and 1780s. There's a little revival, but the government basically cracks down on um, political debate in London. And so the female debating societies uh uh, basically vanish. There's a version of them in the United States in the 19th century when um, women's 
associations and clubs, particularly associated with um, uh, anti-slavery reform, uh, begin to develop um, and women's literary clubs. But yeah, it's a really incredible um, a really incredible moment. And one that I was just, you know, I was like, how can I be a historian and not have ever read about this? You know, when I read the book, you talked about Noah Webster and his views. Um, was he well received? What was his views about women during that time? Yeah, Noah Webster, who um, people might might not know, but he's the the Webster Dictionary. He's the Webster of Webster Dictionary, still in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Um, uh, he he would become very famous as a, um, a person who wrote on language and and obviously um, uh, words. In this period, he was a very young man and he was trying to get started. And so he actually decided he would have a lecture series to raise money. Uh, and he went to a number of cities, including Philadelphia, and people thought he was terrible as a lecturer. He was boring and he was pompous and he was um, particularly kind of nasty to older women, said terrible comments about them. And he's important in my book because he actually heard Eliza Harriet lecture twice. Um, he might have even been the model for Eliza Harriet's original lecture, but her lectures were much better received um, than his. And he didn't like her lecture very much. He called her lecture um, dull. So, but he didn't really think women should participate in public uh, public affairs. But yeah, he was not well received at all in Philadelphia compared to her. You know, as we read through the book, the economic sufferings of Eliza. Tell us about her last days. You know. Yeah, it's so, it's so, I wanted, you know, when you write about a person, you somehow want them to have like a happy ending and, and, and somehow, you know, have this wonderful end of her life. And she, and she doesn't, um, she keeps teaching for a very long time. It's a little bit hard to track because, um, during the civil war, so many of the newspaper collections in the South were burned. And so we don't know, we don't have newspapers for the South, like we do for, um, the middle colonies and middle States and the North, but she, she kept teaching. She, she taught for a long time and, um, and John vanishes. I like to imagine he went back to Ireland to participate uh, in one of the Irish revolutions in the 1790s. Um, but I don't know that he could have just died of yellow fever or cholera. And she ends up um, at the time of her death in 1811, living uh, probably in one room in a house of the person who was likely her executor. And um, you can still see her ambition in her will. She wrote a will. Uh, she didn't have land, but she wanted to write a will. She wanted to take care of um, making sure that her personal possessions went to the the people who uh, she wanted them to go to, which were um, the daughters of her executor. And the inventory on her list um, shows us books. She had reading spectacles. She was a person who always did a lot of needlework. And so she still had um, those boxes, but it's a little bit sad. She has a chamber pot. Um, she doesn't have a lot of money. And, and she dies um, uh, 
you know, somewhat impoverished, uh, certainly economically disadvantaged uh, at the end of her life. She dies in her 60s, which actually at the time was um, a a pretty decent length of time uh, for for a woman. I I looked around um, in Columbia. I'd hoped that maybe her uh, headstone would still exist, but I wasn't able to to locate it. But maybe someday someone will find um, uh, an Eliza O'Connor uh, gravestone, and we'll know where she was buried. I've taken enough of your time. What's the next project you'll be working on? Well, I um I really was would like to write um, some more about a woman named Catherine McCauley, who was a great writer of political histories and who many of the framing founding fathers thought was one of the great historians of her generation. And she has a super interesting life in that um, for a while she's married, then her husband dies, she raises a young daughter by herself, and then fairly late in life she marries a much, 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 much younger man who was almost 30 years uh, younger than her, which was not at all the thing to do um, in those days, probably um, doesn't, doesn't work for some people today. And so she's a pretty interesting person, and, um, and I would love to be able to write about her. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on and thanks for the wonderful questions.